story where God's name is not mentioned, and yet we see God's fingerprint on all of it. Lord, may we take comfort in this passage of Scripture that Luke has recorded for us as we see the providential and the shepherding and the care for your servants. Lord, I pray that we will take encouragement knowing that our God, our Savior, if he did not withhold his only son, how much more will he not freely give us the things that we need? May we take courage today to know that if God before us, then who can be against us? Father, open our eyes to see your marvelous truths this morning. We pray this and we ask for your guidance, for your help. Ask the Holy Spirit to do his work of revealing truth and convincing of sin and causing repentance in the hearts of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes I look at a passage of Scripture and I'll have no clue where I'm going to go with it. This was one of those passages as I just looked at it and I thought, God, I just, I don't see a, a sermon here. I see a great story, but I don't necessarily see a way to, to preach this passage of Scripture. And I prayed and I prayed and meditated on it and read it again and read it again. And one thought continually came to my mind. And it may be the wrong thought, I don't know, but my thought was, it was a lot of different things, but it, it came back to this one principle, and that is that God works all things together for good. To those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I thought, well, if that's where the Lord's taking me, I've got to explain Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. And so I thought, that's probably where I need to start. If I'm going to take this message and say that God works all things together for good, I need to be able to explain, I need to internalize that. And my study of Romans 8... 28 and 29, started 18 years ago. So this isn't a week study. This is half a lifetime of my oldest son. He was 18 years old. And Kelly can testify <laughs> that um, they got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> to say the least. And Michael was hard-headed, strong-willed. I remember when he was five years old that I knew this kid was either going to turn out to be something ex extraordinary or he's going to be a convict, one or the other. <laughs> and I got phone call after phone call from his kindergarten teacher who couldn't control him. And... Uh, 
you guys remember those uh, Ninja Turtles? <laughs> and uh, he had one on his, on his little lunchbox. I said, we're getting rid of that. I said, that thing's, that thing's of the devil. <laughs> and I, th- I think they were. I mean, they used to sit around in circles and have seances and, and meditate and, and, you know, do weird stuff. I said, those, those, those things are... So we got rid of those things. Well, that didn't help. He had a little troll. and They, they love this. They, they brought, he brought up a troll one day, and so I doused him with gasoline and burned a little troll. So the kids, they love that. So I, mean, I was going to get rid of everything. But uh, what Michael needed more than anything else was a, a strong hand. And I told his kindergarten teacher, I says, if he gives you grief, I'm coming up there with my paddle. And that lasted for about three phone calls, and Michael straightened out. And he was far from perfect. When he was 18 years old, he decided he was going to go into the military. And the night that he was to go into the military, he had a serious altercation with the law, and he was arrested. And it looked like his entire future, his entire career, was going to be derailed. And his mother got on an airplane, flew across the ocean, went to see the district attorney, explained things. At that point, Michael's entire life began to turn around. But I studied with this, struggled with this concept, and the thought that maybe Jesus did not die for my son. I had been taught certain theology through divinity school, and I struggled with this issue. I never fully grasped it, never fully understood it, and I laid in bed one night, and I struggled, and I struggled, and I kept meditating on a verse, and I couldn't remember where it was, but it was this verse that says, but we see Jesus who by the grace of God has tasted death for every man. I jumped out of bed and I got my Strong's Concordance. I found it was in Hebrews 2.9. Grabbed my Greek New Testament and began to study it. And the Greek construction left me with no doubt that Christ has died for every single individual on the face of the earth. And I will not back away from that conviction. I am convinced of that. And so it began a study in my life on difficult passages such as Hebrews, I mean Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know that God has worked all things together for good to those who love God who are the called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew. And that was the phrase that really, really hung me up. What does it mean, those who God foreknew? Does it mean that God has predetermined, that God has decreed certain ones, and those are the ones whom he foreknew? Is that what foreknowledge means? Now that's a Calvinistic looking at that passage. That's what I had been taught. I had people that I highly respected, people that trained me before I went to divinity school that I thought and admired and respected their theology. They had a completely different theology, 
and it was from Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius looked at that verse and said, God was looking through the corridors of time, and God foreknew their choices. And therefore, these are the ones that God has called and chose. And I wrestled with both of those issues, and I said, which one is true? Because I was only presented those as the only options. But as I began to study this for myself and dig and look at those prior to the Reformation, there were a lot of different views on this verse. And because this controversy has divided the church, we are polarized on those two views. And often those two views are caricatured. Or they build these strong men, straw men rather, and that those, both those views are mocked by the opposing sides. And I didn't want to build a strong man, straw man so that I could tear it down. I wanted to know what this biblical text was actually teaching. What does it mean that God foreknew? So I simply started with a lexicon. What does the word foreknowledge mean? So I'm going to take us today and look at the lexical definition of foreknowledge, and we're going to look at biblical texts that use the word, and we're going to come up with a biblical definition, not a definition by one camp or the other camp, but what does the Bible say? What does the lexicon, the Greek lexicon, definition of foreknowledge actually mean? It does not mean that God foreordains. Foreknowledge does not mean that. It does not mean that God pre-decrees things. That is not what foreknowledge means. The Greek word is pro-gnosko. Pro means prior. Gnosko means to know. Literally the word means prior knowledge or to know someone or something intimately beforehand. It doesn't mean to decree anything. It doesn't mean to look down through the corridors of time and know what people are, are going to decide. That is not the definition of that word. So let's look at how this word is used biblically in other passages. So let's go to Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And I realize that this is probably going to be about a two-hour sermon, so I hope you all stay awake. And we may do it in two parts. But I want you to walk through this with me so that you can see how these, this word is used by the Greek writers, the biblical writers themselves. And this is how Paul uses this word in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. His people, the people that God had entered into a covenant with, through the patriarch Abraham, that covenant then was down, passed to Isaac, his son, and Isaac to Jacob, and they formed his people. They were a covenant people that God had entered into a relationship prior. God had entered into this relationship previously with these people. Has God cast away this people that he had previously entered into a relationship with? And the answer is certainly not. And Paul uses himself as an example, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he prognosco, the people whom he foreknew. It doesn't mean that God preordained any of these people. It means that God previously had a relationship with these people. 
that God previously knew them and entered into a covenant agreement with these people. He's not cast away these people whom he foreknew. And then he uses Elijah as an example. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It'll take you a while to flip over there. Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter. 1st Peter, this is another instance where this word prognosco is used in the New Testament. 2nd Peter 3.17. Let's read verse 16 just to get the context. As also in all of Paul's letters, speaking of them things which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people rest or twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scripture. Great verse for the inspiration of Paul's letters as considered the Bible already. You didn't have to wait to the Council of Nicaea. These books are already considered part of the New Testament. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand... That's the same Greek word, prognosko. How is it used here? Since you have already previously known these things, you knew these things beforehand, so that the lexical definition is to know someone beforehand, to have a relationship with someone beforehand. It's not to decree something. It's not to order something, to ordain something prior. It's not to look through the corridors of time and to see in the future. He says, you previously knew these things. You had prior knowledge about these things. God has not cast away his people who he priorly knew and had an intimate relationship with. Now, let's go to one other passage and you'll see it absolutely clearly in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Paul's giving the testimony of his earlier life. Keep that in mind. That's the context. He's giving a testimony of his previous life before he was converted to the Apostle Paul. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 26. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Prognosco. You know it. You previously knew what I was like beforehand. To know something beforehand. To have an intimate relationship beforehand. In verse 5, they knew, prognosco, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Those who previously knew me, those who had a prior relationship with me. So when Paul uses that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those whom I foreknew. He is using this as an encouragement. You know that God works all things together for good because you know those people that I had a relationship with in the past. I did the exact same thing. Now, in order to understand a passage, you have to know the lexical definition of a word, but more importantly... You need to know the grammar that surrounds that passage. The grammar has to 
to fit all the passage. You cannot violate the laws of grammar and come up with a proper interpretation of a passage. So the next thing I'm going to walk us through is the grammar of this passage. And it starts in Romans 8, 17 through 30. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we'll start at verse 17. And we'll walk through the grammar of this passage. And then lastly, we will look at the context of this passage. So we'll start at verse 17. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role in our lives. The Holy Spirit is given to us that we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit uh, adopts us into the family of God. We become children of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed, verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him. Notice that that is present tense. If we suffer, notice also that it is contingent. It is a conditional statement. This isn't for everybody. This is for those who are going through suffering. If we suffer, that we will also be glorified together. Notice that that's future tense. We shall be glorified. If we are going through suffering right now, future tense, we shall be glorified. Now he gives... In verse 18, the word for as evidence. This is giving the reason why he knows that we're going to be futurely glorified. If indeed we are going through suffering, we will be glorified. For I consider that the suffering of this present time. Notice he's talking about the present time. It's present tense. For I consider, I am considering right now, present tense that the suffering of the present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory future tense. Future tense, which shall be revealed in us. So glory is dependent on whether you're suffering right now. It's future tense, we shall be glorified. The suffering that we're going through right now, it's not worthy to be compared to what? Future glory, he's talking about something in the future tense, and this is important because when we get down to verse 30, you're going to see that he switches to the past tense. If he's talking about people whom he previously had a relationship, it would make sense that Paul would shift to the past tense. So let's continue to follow the passage here. Verse 20, another reason for, or another reason, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Future tense. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, past tense, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also, notice it's, will be delivered from the bondage of the corruption of the glorious liberty of the sons of God. This is the third time the word glory has been used. So I'm getting a little bit into the context. The context is about future glory. The context is about present suffering. The tenses all are indicating this. Glory is something in the future. We are presently suffering. This passage, the context is telling us there are certain things that we can do right now when you are going through a trial, when you are going through sufferings. Right now, you can look forward to future glory. All of creation is not the way God intended it to be. 
One day the creation will be as it was in the garden, but right now it is not there. And all of creation is groaning, and we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we are groaning, aren't we? Aren't we? Jose, yeah, give me a thumbs up, Jose. He's groaning over there. He's waiting to get out of that cast. His wife is waiting to get out of that wheelchair. And you know what? Every one of us are cursed with these bodies that are groaning, and we are waiting for future glorification. That is the context. That is the grammar of this passage. Now, what do we do in the midst of all this? One, we look forward to future glory. But secondly, we have the Holy Spirit right now who prays for us. When you're going through a hard time, when you are going through suffering, you don't even know how to pray, do you? You're just saying, God, I know one day I'm going to be futurely glorified, but Lord, I'm dealing with this right now. Moms, y'all can testify to that. Dads, you can testify to that. All of us, we know what that's like, and sometimes you don't even know how to pray when you are in the midst of present suffering. You know you're going to be glorified, but then the Holy Spirit begins to pray for you with groanings which cannot be uttered. So that's the second consolation we have during suffering. One, I know I'm going to be future glorified. Secondly, I know the Holy Spirit prays for me when I don't know how to pray. The third consolation that we have, and this is where the grammar gets important again, verse 28 And we know. It's the Greek word, not gnosko, it's the Greek word oida, which to know something by analyzing it and studying it. The tense of this word know, and you can check me out. I I know that none of you have the time to study Greek language, but it's pretty simple to just do a little word check on this. This word know is in the perfect tense in the original language. The perfect tense means something that's happened in the past and it's complete. But it has ongoing results into the future and into the present time. So Paul says, I know it because I've observed it and I've seen it in the past. And those truths that I have observed and I have seen in the past, they are still true today. That's what he's saying in Romans 8.28. He says, I have observed these things in the past, and I know it to be true, that God works all things together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Now, let's just think about some people that Paul may have observed in the past. I'm sure it was probably Joseph. God worked all things together for good for Joseph. It wasn't good that his brothers threw him in a pit. It wasn't good that he became a slave. It wasn't a good thing that his Potiphar's wife lied about him. It wasn't a good thing that the prison guard forgot about his dreams. But God was orchestrating all those things. And Paul says, I know it because I've seen it in the past. And those truths are still real today. For those whom God foreknew that he had a relationship with, he was predestined them to become more like Jesus. And he put them through all of those things. And I know it to be true. 
Now he switches to the aorist tense. It's a complete past event that's over and finished. He cannot be talking about people he's decreed in the future to get saved because he's using the aorist tense. He can't be talking about those earlier in the chapter because their glorification is yet future. He can't be talking about creation because its deliverance is yet future. We are saved in this hope, yet this hope isn't realized. He can't be talking about people that he's decreed to be saved already because they are waiting for the redemption of their body. Let's look at that passage. It's an, it's an apposition. It's renaming what they're waiting for. Verse 23, not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption. Our glorification has not happened yet. The people that he's talking about in Romans 8, 29, their glorification has already happened. That's why it's in the aorist tense. That's why it's in a complete past finished tense. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he has already glorified because he's talking about people in the Old Testament that knew God and that God was working out all those things for his glory. And so I present you with a third option. You may be saying, Mr. Patrick, I've never heard that before. Well, there's a lot of current-day theologians who espouse this. I mean, godly men who are scholars. I'll name just one off my head is a man named um, uh, William Lane Craig. He's a theologian and a scholar. C.S. Lewis, R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody. So there's, a, but this has been shrouded and clouded under the guise of either it's this one or it's this one without ever really looking at the biblical text. And I hope I've walked you through it to see the grammar, to see the context, and to see that this word doesn't mean to look down through the quarters of time and know what you're going to choose. It doesn't mean that God's going to decree something. It means that God had a previous relationship with these people and God has already glorified them. And one day you too will be glorified. Right now you've got the Holy Spirit living in your heart. It tells and testifies that you are a son of God. All of creation is going to be radically changed one day. And we have this future hope. And we can look at those other people that God has done incredible things in the past. And we can take huge comfort for. We can look, for example, at the book of Esther. And see what God had done through Esther. All those things that Haman wanted to do to God's people. And God orchestrated every little thing to work out for her good and for her people's good and for God's glory. We can look at the book of Ezra and see how they tried to stop the building of the temple. And they issued a decree and said, stop the building. They said, we're going to build it anyway. Haggai and Zechariah stirred us up. And we're going to keep on building they came to him and said, who gave you the authority to build this temple? You go back and you look at Cyrus, his, his decree. They go through all the archives and they find the decree. And you know what Darius does? Because of their evil scheme, Darius says, I want you to pay the taxes on this. I want you to take the timber from anybody's house, rip it down, and help build the temple. God is working all things together for good to those who love God who are the called according to his purpose. And I can look at the past and I can say, God, you will do the same thing for me. This is what I think this passage is teaching us today. Now, what about the book of Acts? Chapter, um, where am I? I don't know. 
Let me find here. Oh, well. Here we go. The schemes of men come as no surprise to God, do they? They, they don't throw God for a loop. The evil schemes of men, before they even plotted together to kill Paul, the night before the angel prepares Paul for what's going to happen. Acts 23, 11 through 15. God prepares us with his presence and with his promise. God allows the depths of evil, but God does not ordain evil. The strongest sentiments of evil was presented by these men. They had sworn themselves to an oath. They thought they were going to control Paul's destiny. They thought they were going to take it within themselves and they banned themselves under a strict Jewish vow. The Greek word for oath here is anathema. They were accursed from God if they do not kill him. In the guise and in the name of religion, some of the most evil schemes have been plotted out, haven't they? The depths of man's evil is no surprise to God. Evil is highly motivated sometimes. I mean, evil is driven with an obsession. And we don't have to fear it. Our God is in control. Our God is sovereign. The definition of sovereign is that God does whatever he wants to do. Our God is in heaven. And he does what pleases him. And it pleased our God to give man a free will so that we could freely love him and for men to reject him. And our God is so powerful, he doesn't have to play both sides of the chessboard in order to win the chess game. Our God is so wise and so powerful, he can allow men to make their moves and he can still get them checkmated. And that's what God is doing in this passage. He's allowing evil men to do their own schemes and yet God is using it for his good and to bring about all the glory to him. God wants us to live one day at a time. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? But when we know that God is in control of all the things that are happening around us and that God can work all things together for good, even evil things, I can live one day at a time. There is no other way to live anyway. I mean, we ought to make plans. The plans of the wise are, are blessed. But in the final analysis, we ought to say, right, my life is but a vapor. It appears for a short time and then vanishes away. I ought to say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Paul said, if it's the Lord's will, I am going to get to Rome and I'm going to testify there. If it's the Lord's will. And apparently it was the Lord's will. But we can live one day at a time. I don't have to borrow tomorrow's worries because evil schemes and evil plans are going around right now. You know, this week somebody brought me two papers about legislation that could be passed in Washington. And if you let that kind of stuff bother you, 
It will cripple your Christian life. Let them do what they want to do. If we can't meet in this building, we'll find the backside of Ben Loman Mountain. I don't know what we'll do, but we don't have to worry. It may never come to nothing. That's bad English, double negative. That's good Greek. <laughs> but we don't have to worry. Paul didn't sit around and worry in that, that cell, am I going to make it to Rome? God had told him you're going to get there. The very next day, they come up with this scheme and this plot to kill him and put themselves under this anathema curse. And Paul doesn't lose a lick of sleep. Oh, I wish I could learn that lesson. Man, I stay up all night trying to solve every problem. I stay up all night trying to preach through sermons. I try to stay up, and it doesn't do me any good. I fall asleep at my desk the next day. He gives his beloved one sleep. Why stay up and late and eat the bread of affliction? Our Father loves us, and he's going to take care of us. Point number two, notice the ease. Notice the ease by which God can thwart the plans of over 40 men a Sanhedrin of 70, the chief priests in the council. Those guys are a drop in the bucket, aren't they? If God is for you, then who can be against you? The ease by which God thwarts their plans. God uses a little child, Paul's nephew. And we're not even told what in the world he's doing in the city of Jerusalem. Paul doesn't have a single person to defend him. In fact, later on, Paul writes, at my first defense, everybody forsook him. Nevertheless, the Lord stood by me, and God providentially has a little boy who they take by the hand and lead him back to the commander. And out of the mouth of babes and suckling, God has ordained strength that he might silence the enemy and the avenger. God doesn't worry about how powerful our enemy is. With complete ease, he silences the enemy. They were exposed before they could even ask for Paul's transfer. A little child discovers their plot. God providentially uses weak things many, many times to confound the mighty because the weakness of God, if there was such a thing, is stronger than the might of man. The foolishness of God, if there was ever such a thing, is wiser than the wisdom of man. And God can thwart and overturn all the plans of these men. A couple of verses that I want to leave with you. One is Psalm 33.10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to naught, he maketh the plans of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33.10. Proverbs 19.21. There are many devices or plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. God works all things together for good. The Roman Empire, it spanned from North Africa to Spain 
to Medea and Persia, the Tigris-Euphrates River. Massive empire, massive wealth, road systems, diplomats, you name it. But all government is ordained by God and ultimately controlled by God. Like the rivers of water, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whithersoever he wishes. And God uses the mighty Roman Empire to reach down and to help this lone servant in the city of Jerusalem. And he gets a 470-man escort to Antipartus, a fortified city 40 miles from Jerusalem, to carry him safely to Caesarea where he can testify before the Roman governor, Felix. Paul has an opportunity to witness before the providential empire, Rome and their governor. This never would have happened. It never would have happened if they had not conspired to kill him. God loves doing that, doesn't he? He just turns it on their head and flips it around. What do we learn from this story? Seven applications that I think that we can take home with us. And you probably won't remember all seven of them. If you remember one of them, you'll be doing good probably. But first of all, we don't have to fear when suffering and calamity comes into our lives. We know from the past that God is working all things together for good to those who love God. Those who love God, listen to this verse, 1 Corinthians 8.3, those who love God are known by God. God works all things together for good to those who love God. Because those who love God are known, intimately known by God. I don't have to fear what's going to happen to me. Number two, it's nothing for God to turn the counsel of man into none effect. Whatever schemes and whatever plots and whatever tragedy you may be facing, it is nothing for our God to turn that thing over and to turn it in the other direction. Number three, the resources of God are limitless. They are without limit. Right at Paul's disposal was the entire Roman Empire to get him where he needed to go. What has God got for you? I worry about the most mundane, petty little things, and my father and your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and if God was hungry, he wouldn't tell me. All of it is at his disposal to use in our lives if we need it and when we need it. God often uses natural means, not miraculous ways sometimes, to providentially supply our needs. There's not a single miracle in this chapter that we just read. It's not always the miracles. You know, sometimes we're looking for the big, big splash in the pan. And God just took a little nephew of 
and uncovered their plots. God will sometimes use just natural things in your life, things that you already have at your disposal, and God will say, look what you've got. Just use that. That's the answer to what you need. I, I've been praying for my silly old truck to pass the admissions. <laughs> and, uh, and my brother, Ron Goers, he says, I got this little gasbo. Just stick it in your thing, and then the light will go off, and then you wait till it stops flashing, and then you go down and get it. I mean, I was on my fourth, no, third. I, I can't get four. <laughs> my fourth, I was, gonna, I was on my third temporary, and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. My wife's in Florida. I've got to get my kid to school. I, he's not going to ride a bicycle. <laughs> I would, but, but he, he said, no, I'll stay home, Dad. <laughs> and right here, Ron says, here, just fix this thing. And I've been praying. It, it wasn't some miracle. I didn't go out and lay hands on my truck. I, I did anoint it with oil. <laughs> but, <laughs> but God sometimes just uses the simple things right around us, doesn't he? Number five, we can be absolutely assured of our future glory. Right now, if you're suffering, you know that it's not even worthy. Can you imagine the glory of heaven? Can you imagine a a new body? No tears, no suffering, no sorrow. 50, 30, 60, 20, whatever years that you're going through a hard time, Put it on the scale and put eternity on the other side. It's not worthy to be compared. The last one. All we have to do is to look how God has worked all things for good for those whom he previously knew in the past. To know for absolute certain that he will do the same for you and I. Let's close with prayer. Father, this was a lot for us to soak in today, God. And Lord, we don't have to agree with each other on every jot or tittle of theology, whether we're on one side or this side, or trying to come up with a middle ground where we see what the Bible is clearly saying. God, we might have some disagreements with some of these minor issues. But God, the things that we agree on far outweigh those minor things that we may have a difference of opinion on. Lord, all of us know and believe that your counsel finally will stand. All of us know that one day we will be glorified. It has not yet happened. All of us now who believe in Jesus Christ have the confidence that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit all the way until the day of redemption. And when we don't know how to pray, we know the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And God, we all agree today that all the resources ultimately belong to you and you can have us experience just a little bit of it right now when we need it. And God, all of us know that we've got right things, right things right before us at our own disposal that you might want to use to confound the things that are and to bring to nothing the counsels that stand against you. Lord, we do not fear tomorrow 
because we know the one who's holding our hand right now in Jesus' name.